One of the reasons why we do this is, one, because we, we participate in celebrating communion uh, every week, almost every week. We, we, we don't necessarily do it during our Christmas services because we are setting aside time to celebrate the uh, uh, birth of Christ, and we don't at our Easter services because we're setting aside time to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. But outside of that, the general flow of our worship services uh, in terms of prayers and singing and sermon it is our hope that the, 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 the flow of the service culminates in and, and in some ways uh, crescendos with the celebration of intimacy at the Lord's table. And we do this every single week. And so it is one of the first questions I get when people are new to our community. We're also, we're an interdenominational church. So it means we bring a lot of teaching and convictions and assumptions and even questions about communion. And, and consistently, two of the ones that are most often is one, why do we celebrate it every week? And two, um, th- there is a lot of concern about whether or not the participant is worthy to take communion. And uh, I've learned a lot of stories from here. I mean, I've learned a lot of background by hearing your stories, and I appreciate you sharing those with me. So I want to address those topics um, at least once a year. And uh, so we're going to do that this morning. So we're going to begin with looking at the uh, life of Jesus and the time in which he instituted, if you will, this sacrament of communion. And we'll look at some of the other terms for it in just a few minutes. But it begins with Jesus, and but it is rooted in the uh, Jewish celebration of Passover. And it's critical that we understand that connection. Two of the things that seem to me that create confusion in the contemporary practice of Christianity is, one, we don't talk about and learn enough about what it means that the kingdom of God message that Jesus brought is an invitation to participate in a new covenant that God has with humanity through the work of Jesus. And it is somewhat reflective of the old covenant that he had with ancient Israel. And so that origin informs our understanding of the new covenant. And in the same way, we could say Passover, in one way, is the beginning of an inaugural event of this new old covenant people of God. And, 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 and communion is, in some ways, an inaugural event for the new covenant people of God. And we want to look at that because one of the things that's undercommunicated, at least in American evangelicalism in the West, is an appreciation for the fact that if we really want to understand the roots of our faith, we have to develop an understanding and an appreciation that our faith is rooted in ancient Judaism. And it is impossible for us to fully understand the language of our faith and the customs of our faith without some sort of awareness of the way it is rooted in ancient Judaism. And this is one of those um, practices that very much is enhanced by that understanding. So let's look at when Jesus instituted. And it's essentially the moment when Jesus takes one of the most significant uh, events and celebrations of ancient Israel, and he makes it about himself. Now, we take that for granted. But the first generation of Jewish believers that were trying to wrap their head around this new covenant and what it means to follow Jesus as the Messiah, 
It was no small thing for them to wrap their heads around the concept that Jesus is saying that this ancient practice that they followed, this ancient celebration that signified the origin of their freedom and their calling out as an entire nation, that Jesus then takes this celebration and he says, essentially, this is about me. So the first time we see this is in the Gospels. And it's at the end of Jesus' life when he is celebrating the final uh, Passover celebration that he will um, celebrate in this life and with his followers. It's found in Luke 22 and 14, and then we'll drop down and read verses 19 through 20. When When the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Now, at the the very beginning, we want to take heed to those words. There are not a lot of moments throughout the Gospels where Jesus expresses this level of vulnerability about his own longings and desires. When when we do see those things, it, it, it is in the context of very significant events like the temptation or the resurrection of Lazarus, or his time in the garden. But this is another one of those times where, where, where our Lord is emphasizing his longing and the importance on his heart that he celebrate this Passover so that he can, in essence, expand their understanding and in some ways redefine the entire event around himself. So he says, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Verse 19. And then we're told he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Then further along in the writings of the New Testament, whenever Paul is giving instructions to the Corinthian church about communion, which we actually will look a little bit more of that passage uh, in just a few moments, uh, he essentially repeats what is written in the Gospels, and he quotes it uh, nearly verbatim uh, whenever he's given his instructions. So this is the idea that we're going to be exploring. Now, first of all, because we come from different backgrounds, I'm going to quickly just go over uh, some of the terms that are attached to this practice. Uh, Obviously, by by the way I'm speaking, the common way we refer to it in our community is communion, even though that's actually not my favorite way of referring to it. Um, But uh, it's one of the four terms. You may have grown grown up with the phrase, the Lord's Supper. Uh, And the Lord's Supper... uh, it's, it's entitled the Lord's Supper because it's a, it's a memorial and a remembrance uh, of the meal that Jesus t- had with his disciples and the invitation for us to dine with him as well. I don't have time. This is the other thing. Every year we go over communion. There are all these ideas I want to share with you, and, and, I've, and I've got to start editing, uh, uh, particularly because we want to get out of here before there's any snow today. Um, but um, I've checked the weather. We've got plenty of time, so just get comfortable. Uh, but, but what I like about that is, is, is the concept of table in Scripture is so profound. And honestly, um, one of my favorite books is How to Read Literature Like a College Professor. 
And even in there, uh, there's a whole chapter dedicated to the table and its significance when it shows up in works of literature or poetry or even film. Meals are not fillers. Meals have significance because they are a literary means of communicating some basic ideas of uh, our collective human need. But and it's no less true when meals show up in Scripture and in the life of Jesus because the meal not only signifies intimacy, but it also signifies the way in which Jesus was willing to break social custom and order and propriety in order to be intimate with those who were considered outsiders or unclean, but he knew needed him the most. Or maybe not the most, but their need was so obvious. And so, so the Lord's Supper reminds us of that intimacy with the Lord and that last meal that he shared with his disciples. Second, the one that we use most common is communion. It's from the Greek word koinonia, and, and it simply means fellowship. It means that we commune together or we share in the death and the risen life of our Lord together. And I like that because I like the way it emphasizes the community aspect of communion. But my favorite is probably the Eucharist. The Eucharist comes from the Greek word for thank you. We are thanking God for what he has done through Jesus, just as Jesus gave thanks before serving the bread and the wine. And I really like it because the Eucharist reminds me that the proper posture of heart that I bring to the Lord's table is one of deep, deep gratitude. And then finally, and less familiar for most of us probably is the word mass. And that comes from the Latin word that simply means go, you are sent out. And sending, this is, this is where we can really learn from our Catholic brothers and sisters, sending eventually became the ending of the communion service. And I do think connecting sending with the intimacy of communion is of vital importance. So what I want to emphasize, though, is this idea of the new covenant and the new exodus. Um, I, I'm not going to go into the ideas of the new covenant because we spent the entire message last week talking about that, particular Hebrews 8, verses 10 through 13. If you didn't get a hold of that, uh, I don't do this. I really don't do this that often. But I would really recommend you going back and watching that or getting the podcast. And if you weren't here and you want the notes that go along with it, if you will email me at rdf at ardmorecc.com, I will happily send those because in it we have some uh, suggested affirmations and declarations for you to make part of your practice in growing in your understanding of what it means to be a gracious recipient of this new covenant. But what I want to emphasize for us this morning is the idea of the new exodus. This is where communion is connected to Passover, and it's a redefinition and a broader definition of the idea. Because the significance of this event and what Jesus is doing is communicated in the origins of the original exodus and in the Passover celebration. And Paul refers to, he doesn't say this explicitly, but he's using the language of exodus in, a, in his letter to the Colossians. And this is where we see this coming together of how Israel in some way serves as a template for understanding the journey that we're all called to as humans and even as individuals. And so we find in Colossians chapter 1 verses 12 through 14, Paul writes this, always thanking the Father, there's our Eucharistic attitude right there, always thanking the Father. 
He has enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to his people. See, that phrase is where we are onboarding the understanding of the two-thirds of the Bible of the Old Covenant story of ancient Israel and how we're now onboarding the Gentile experience and expanding that covenant from one of exclusivity to one of inclusivity. So that's a significant idea, and this is where we enter the picture. So just as what Paul is pointing out is what it means to be saved, to follow Jesus, is has originally was not primarily about the afterlife. It was not about heaven and hell. It is rooted in this event that defined ancient Israel, which was they were in bondage, and Yahweh rose up and set them free. He delivered them and he changed their identity from one as slaves to the free people, covenant people of God. And and Paul is rooting our salvation experience into that story, which is primarily not about the afterlife, but about transformation and freedom in this life today. And so Paul is, is, is connecting that. And so what he says is, uh, um, we'll just start again because I got distracted. Always thanking the Father, he has enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to his people who live in the light. For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. Too many people practice the faith as if they are still slogging through and contending with the kingdom of darkness. It's a false narrative. That's not where you start. You've been plucked out of that kingdom and you have been transferred into the kingdom of love and light. That is... But the problem is we live as though we're still struggling in the kingdom of darkness rather than aligning with the truth that our citizenship is now in this new kingdom that God, through through no action of our own, God is the one who transferred us. You didn't transfer yourself by your faith. You didn't transfer yourself by your uh, uh, confession. You didn't transfer yourself by your sinner's prayer. God transferred you. Now, those other things may have been a way of you experiencing and understanding that revelation, but God is the one who transferred you. And that's what this meal is all about, gratitude, thanking the Father, because he's rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. What is significant, particularly here in our community, is this understanding of communion. Communion is rooted in the context of Passover. Jesus chooses to expand the definition of Passover and make it about himself. By the way, this paragraph is in your notes. Passover was a celebration of the redemption of Israel. It is rooted in ancient Israel's Passover. It is a celebration that they had been set free, released from bondage, and given a new identity that honored their dignity as the people of God. Jesus makes communion about himself. Participation in communion is a remembrance 
that because of the revealed heart of God in the life and work of Jesus, we have been set free, released from bondage, and given a new identity that honors our dignity as the people of God, as his sons and daughters. So, in a moment, we'll see there's biblical reasons why we do this every week. But, the, but, but one of the pragmatic reasons is it is intended to be when you come to these worship services that you have a moment where you, invite, you are invited into an identity reset to remind yourself of who you are as the new covenant people of God. So that is the basic answer to why we do it every week. But... Let's ask the question and answer it. Why do we celebrate the Eucharist every week or communion every week? Uh, number one, very quickly, because Jesus commanded it and the early church practiced it. I mean, Jesus just simply said, do this in remembrance of me. There are no time frames. Honestly, I think, and I'll make a case for that as we close, that you could benefit by celebrating this um, sacrament every single day, uh, privately, as part of your spiritual formation practices. And I, and I say that because as I've experimented with it, it has become such a beautiful uh, uh, experience of my own personal spiritual formation, a, a consistent observation of communion. But Jesus commanded it, and the early church practiced it. Um, number two, because we want to create a weekly practice that reminds us that we are forgiven and reconciled people who are called to share our forgiveness and reconciliation with others. And because we want to remember Jesus' treatment of us, so that we are reminded of how we are called to treat others. In short, we practice this every week so that we can remember his mission and remember our commission. We remember his mission and we are reminded of our commission. I apologize for the frequent water sips. Um, illness and plague has entered the Farb household in the past few weeks. We've been in emergency rooms, doctor's office, and laying flat out on the bed. I am on the uphill swing, though, of that, but my throat still hasn't caught up with me. Uh, so we remember his mission, and we remember our commission. What does that mean to remember his mission? We remember, we recall, and remind ourselves that the Passover was about the liberation, identity, and mission of Israel, and thus the new exodus, or communion, is about our liberation, identity, and mission. We are proclaiming Jesus' work of revealing forgiveness that results in reconciliation, not just for religious people, but for everyone. Remember Hebrews 10.10, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And unfortunately, that's so easy for us to forget. We are sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ Jesus once for all. Jesus has proclaimed and demonstrated God's forgiveness. Jesus has redeemed us from our uh, uh, deception of alienation and brokenness. Jesus is leading our exodus from bondage to liberty. He is giving us our new identity and so, therefore, the way we honor Jesus is by living like forgiven people. But how many of you struggled for decades 
still rehearsing a narrative of shame every time you came to church. One of the hardest things for Christian people to do is to have the audacity, audacity to live like forgiven people. But if we would live like forgiven people, then forgiveness toward others comes so much easier. In fact, it's not really a discipline. It becomes a fruit. But that's how we honor him. And we remember our commission. When we remember Jesus' treatment of us, we are reminded of how we are called to treat others. Just as Jesus serves us to restore us, so we serve the world to bring about restoration. This is precisely why traditionally communion services ended with commission. Because we are healed by what this table represents so that we are empowered to then offer that bread and wine to the world that so desperately needs to be healed by it as well. And so it becomes our personal identity, but then it becomes our ministry identity as we learn to, in the words of blessed St. Francis, to walk the earth as the pardon of God. And this reminds us and helps equip us to that. So, Look at the time. Look at the time. Well, you all can read. So I'm going to skip this next session section, even though I really like it. But this is certainly, this is just a suggestion that I have for the posture of heart that maybe you take whenever you celebrate. Now we're going to read it. Here we go. Number one, reflect on the life of Jesus and his, and his kindness in forgiving sins. Confess your need for that forgiveness by confessing your sins to him and if need be to others. Confession is a means of healing. In fact, confession doesn't make us forgiven, but it empowers us to experience the healing power of that forgiveness. And then affirm the forgiveness that you've been offered. And then resolve to love and forgive others the same way God has loved and forgiven you. If we would let the forgiveness of God heal us, we will heal the world by walking out in a posture of forgiveness. We will not perpetuate hate and anger and violence. We will embody the forgiveness of God and extend it to others so that they too can be healed. So, question number one, and this is the big one. What does it mean to take communion in an unworthy manner? I have to talk about this because one of the things that, depending on your tradition, the fact that we do this every week is that I'm amazed that this table of grace has been used as judgment, exclusivity, shaming, and bullying Believers who are imperfectly seeking to be faithful to Christ. And it happens when we just give a quick glance at quoting some part of a verse and applying it to people without taking time to appreciate the context in which these words are written. So I need to address that one passage in Corinthians that for so many people is not a celebration of the freedom of the grace of God, but a condemnation and even a fear. Do you know that some people are even told that if they don't come to this table with the right heart, God might kill them? I know that sounds out there, but I've said and walked with people 
who weep from the shame and fear that has been drilled into their minds by the way that this passage has been used to bully them into behavioral submission. So let's take a moment and let's just read it and take it on. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 27 through 32. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we will not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Whoa! That is pretty scary. Without a doubt. So if you just pluck that out of its context and just start quoting it to, to, to people, it, it is kind of a frightening thing. So let's take a moment and just appreciate the context and try to enter into what Paul might have been talking about. And I don't presume to know that thoroughly. I mean, there are parts of the, there's language in that paragraph that confused me as well. But if we allow the context and the text to teach us, we might find some clarity on some issues and thus be delivered from unnecessarily, from unnecessary uh, shame and judgment and fear. Look at what Paul says. Paul's instructions are for participants to examine themselves, not others. That's a really important distinction. Everyone doesn't know, need to know all the underbelly of what takes place in church and in organizations. I don't want to go into a lot of details at all. But I have become the recipient and the leaders have become recipient to lots of anger from time to time. And this verse is used as a justification for that anger. And it usually comes like this. So-and-so I know is doing this. Y'all shouldn't talk to them and tell them they can't take communion. Some version of that simple narrative. Well, even though they're quoting this passage, they're actually not honoring the context. It doesn't say examine others to determine if you think they're worthy to take communion. That is not what it says. So let's honor the passage by understanding that any examination concerns that we have are supposed to be toward ourselves. It is a personal examination between the worshiper and his God. It is not meant to justify our judgment and examination of others. <clears throat> but, so that's really important. It's to examine ourselves and not others. Number two, this idea of the unworthy manner. What does that mean? And when people come to me angry and they say this, and I'll say, okay, so what exactly is the standard for unworthy manner? And pretty much universally, it comes down to this answer. I don't really know. <laughs> but what I know is somehow I'm not that and they are. 
But there's not any hard boundaries. But here's the thing. This text is not so mysterious that we have to speculate. We don't need to guess beyond the text to understand what this means. Look at the word uh, in verse 27. The second word, you see, whoever, therefore, therefore. Now let's go to basic precept hermeneutics. When the word therefore appears in the text, what question should you ask? What is it therefore? So that therefore connects us, gives us a clue. Paul has already revealed the answer. And now he's working out an implication or an application of the answer that he's already revealed. So what is the therefore, therefore? It means simply that these instructions are given considering what has just been said. So let's just look to the text. Let's just glance our eyes up chapter 11 just a bit. We'll be read starting in verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, so now this is, he's given some instructions, some, some hints. In the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. And I believe that in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and the other gets drunk. I will say with all the things that people uh, speculate and all the rumors I hear about our community and myself from time to time. At the very least, so far yet, we have re- we have not received the honorable rumor that they get together and get drunk. But this was what Paul's saying, not just as a rumor. He's saying this is what you do. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Now, what is very interesting about this is what Paul is warning about is not a private morality issue, which is interesting because when everyone stumbles about who's being allowed to take communion, it 100% has to do with some issue of their private morality. But when we look at this context, this is about more of a social justice issue, not a private morality issue. And we have to appreciate the other context in which this was happening. They didn't have government-protected houses of worship where we we have soft chairs and central heat and air and cute little, you know, wafers and little thimbles of grape juice. No, 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 no. These were the love feasts. They were celebrating communion as a meal. So if you want to think about the context, it comes a lot closer to the church potluck than it does to what we do with our little thimble of cracker and juice. They were having meals together. Now look at what this is saying. What they are saying, they were actually coming together with the meal. Some could contribute to that meal more than others. And they were actually allowing the hungry to come to the meal and still go away hungry 
because of the self-indulgence of other members. That's the context that Paul's writing in. They, so what Paul is condemning is this, these four ideas. They participated in divisions among the body. They didn't gather for the Lord's Supper, but to eat a common supper in which the wealthier participants were indulging themselves and literally getting drunk and not sharing with those who were in need. It was a different time. They had a different set of church problems. We have our own church problems. As far as I know, this isn't one of them. Um, maybe once or twice, but that's another story. But uh, not me, though. Uh, they were gathering, getting drunk, and so and they were also neglecting. So, so, so they were indulging themselves, and the point is they weren't sharing with those in need. Their actions were also humiliating to those who had less and who went away hungry. Paul is rebuking the culture of pride, selfishness, drunkenness, and neglect that the Corinthians had created in their gatherings. In fact, we can also understand what it means by uh, an unworthy manner just because of the instructions that he offers for correcting the situation. Look at 33 and 34. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone was hungry, let him eat at home. In other words... Don't come and indulge yourself. If you're over hungry, eat at home first and then come to the meal. Eat at home. Why? So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. What is the answer for reversing this unworthy manner? Wait for one another and eat at home. This is all the instructions he gives. This is not about whether or not you're coming while you're still struggling with sin of some sort. This is about indulgence and neglect. And even that bit about this is, then he says, this is why some of you are sick and some of you are dead. Because when you live a gluttonous lifestyle of drunkenness and overeating, you get sick and you often will be invited into an earlier death than you would have otherwise participated than if you didn't live that self-indulgent lifestyle. This is not weird, mysterious, and complicated. We needn't fear these things. Now, the truth is, you don't need God's judgment for you to get sick because you're drunken and overindulgent. It just comes with the reality. If you choose to participate in that lifestyle, there are particular consequences, and those consequences have bearing on your longevity and on your physical health, which is exactly what Paul says in that letter. But it's so weird because people read that, and then they read into it. Oh, you ate unworthy, therefore God made you sick and killed you. Do you see the jump you have to make to add all of that stuff into the text? But all that needs to happen for us to believe a lie is just hear it repeated over and over and over again. So I would suggest you sit back and study the text and be willing to reframe it based on what's in the text itself. Which brings me to the other question that I get a lot. Should I refrain from celebrating the Eucharist if I'm struggling with sin? No. Now, would you all stand? It's as simple as that. This, ta this table, you don't have to stand just yet. I'm joking. Uh, no, the table is for sinners who recognize their need for forgiveness and new life. Remember, 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 at this table, our Lord served a doubter, a denier, and a betrayer. They were all three there and all three welcomed at the table. Not just welcomed at the table. He actually took up a basin and towel and he washed their feet and served them. 
doubter, a denier, and a betrayer were welcomed at this table. I dare say, whatever you're struggling with might not reach the level of the sin of turning our Lord over to his executioners through an act of betrayal. But that guy was there at the table, and Jesus didn't send him away. So as we get ready to close, I just want to encourage you this. So whether you're at home, or if you're new to this and you're not sure exactly what to say and what to do, I just sh- I want to share with you some of the prayers that literally I pray every time I take communion. Sometimes I pray these prayers privately. Oftentimes when we take communion, when my family is well and all here in attendance, we prefer to gather together and take communion together, and we say some version of these prayers every single week. So if you're not sure what to say, let me suggest a few prayers. Come to the Lord's table, and when you take that bread, hold that bread and say something to the effect, Thank you for entering my brokenness so that I could be healed. In fact, he was broken to enter into our brokenness. And so we say thank you for entering my brokenness so that I could be healed. Lead me also to enter the brokenness of others so that they may be healed by your love. I eat this in remembrance of you. Now think about if you did this on a consistent basis with your children. The powerful imagery and theology that you are passing on to them, it will shape who they become. And then you take your juice or your wine or your Dr. Pepper and you say, thank you for shedding your blood to establish a new covenant. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins. Lead me to forgive others as you have forgiven me. I drink this in remembrance of you. And then you conclude, and here's my favorite part, the blessing. Lord, life is short. And we do not have much time to gladden the hearts of those who travel with us. So let us be quick to love and make haste to be kind. And may the blessing of the one who made us and the one who loves us and the one who travels with us be with us and those we love this day and always. Amen. Isn't that fantastic? I didn't write it. I wish I would have. But isn't that a fantastic blessing? It's a beautiful way to even begin your day, even if you don't have time for communion. This blessing reminds us your job is to go forth in the world and be the incarnation of love and kindness. And that's how we heal. That's how we minister. That's how we evangelize. So as we close, we're going to take communion together. The worship team, if you'll go ahead and come forward. I would encourage you to at least consider making private communion a part of your personal prayer life. However you want to do that. Maybe you want to do that every Wednesday, every Friday, every Saturday. Or maybe you want to take, it, it, it takes less than five minutes at the beginning of your day. 
if you want to practice how this table might form you spiritually if you commit to it for every day for, say, 30 days. Or you could, ever do, you could do it every day for 100 days while you read through Matthew 5, 6, and 7. What a powerful way to ground your being and to engage in spiritual formation. So as we close, you're welcome to come up, take the elements, go back to your seat, take a moment. And if you need to confess sin, confess it. But when you confess your sin, also confess the affirmation of the forgiveness of your sin. If you want, take out your notes and practice these prayers and see if they're meaningful to you in some way. Maybe just let the Spirit lead you into your own articulation of gratitude for the body and blood of our Lord. So would you pray this with me? Thank you, O Christ, for this feast of life. We are fed by your love. We are strengthened by your life. We are sent forth into this world to live into the visions God has laid out on our, laid on our hearts. We are now commissioned to feed as we have been fed, forgive as we have been forgiven, love as we have been loved. Thanks be to God. Amen. You have seen the Savior. Now go in peace. And the blessing of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one in three and three in one, go with you. Amen.